0: Welcome to Coming Clean, the podcast dedicated to common sense environmental dialogue, environmental optimism and real environmental solutions. This show is proudly powered by Orsted. Welcome back to Coming Clean with your host, Benji Backer. I am super excited to be joined by Grace Stanky, somebody who we share a lot in common, uh, but she, one thing that we don't have in common is that she's uh, Miss America, and I happen to not be Miss America. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the show, Grace. It's great to have you here. Oh, thank you so much,
1: Benji. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, that's it's not a very common thing uh, you know, to be Miss America, but it's really exciting because it's a household name. People recognize Miss America mm-hmm. and who she is, and it's exciting to bring uh, myself into that role as a nuclear engineering student and as someone who advocates for zero carbon energy.
0: Yeah, and before we get to that, which, you know, that's one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on, but, you know, there's so much more behind you than your, you know, love for nuclear and being Miss America. You grew up in a small uh, town city that uh, my parents happened to be from and my grandparents happened to be from Wausau, Wisconsin, and I would love for you to just share a little bit about your story how you got to become Miss America, but also how you became who you are in terms of your interest in nuclear. Uh, you know your upbringing in Wisconsin, all the sorts of things that people should know about you uh, before we dive into the to the really exciting stuff.
1: Oh my gosh! Well, who am I at my core? You know this isn't a deep philosophical question at all. Uh, what so is life? I, exactly. What is life? What is the meaning? Uh, I have grown up in Wausau, Wisconsin, as you mentioned. That's where I was born and raised. Uh, lived in the same house my whole life. And one common theme throughout growing up is I always strived for a challenge. I always wanted to uh, focus in school. I always wanted to have to try uh, in my extracurriculars and things like that. So that led to like a really unusual creation and combination of things. I've been told I read like a Mad Lib, which is really entertaining to me because, you know, I'm I Miss America right now. I'm a nuclear engineering student. I'm also a competitive water skier. I'm also a classical violinist. Uh, and I love hiking, nature, outdoors, things. And, uh, you know, my ideal weekend is backpacking in the woods. Uh, so how I became the person I am today, though, like I said, I, I realized this in the past six months. It comes down to that, that desire and that strive for a challenge and wanting to, to have to learn, have to focus and, and fostering that curiosity. So I'll kind of start in middle school. We'll start there because, you know, elementary school is elementary school. I started playing violin when I was eight years old. And by the time I got into middle school, I had two things going on. One was I was in sixth grade I was really bored in my classes. I'm a person who fun fact, I don't believe in 4.0 GPAs. I think if you have a 4.0 GPA, this is just like my personal opinion, you know, no shame But I think if you have a 4.0 GPA, you're either focusing on school too much, or you're not in hard enough classes. Uh, And to me, I it was really important that if I was getting 100% in all of my classes, even as a sixth grader, I was like, I need to be in harder classes. Uh, One because I wanted a challenge, but two, also, if I get bored, I cause problems in the classroom, and I did not (laughs) want to keep doing that. You and me both. Yeah. So I ended up talking to administrators and. trying to get into harder classes. There was a lot of administrative things and uh, policy issues, the common core. I will have a personal fistfight with if I could, but I can't because it's a curriculum. Uh, so also that's something.
0: Those.
1: Yeah, I know. <laughs> but I um, ended up skipping a grade. It was the solution mm-hmm. that we found. So I took a bunch of tests. I did sixth and seventh grade all in one year then, uh, pretty much, where I skipped kind of, a quarter and a half into the school year and then finished out the rest of the year in 7th grade. Uh, and from there I still wasn't finding that I was, you know, finding a challenge in specifically my math and science classes. I wanted to keep pushing a little bit further there. So I asked to be in algebra 1 in 8th grade and they're like, "Ah, well no, the common core, you can't do that." <laughs> I don't know why they have an accent, yep. but apparently they do. They do. <laughs> so, um,
0: I've heard that before.
1: I know, I don't know what it is. Uh yeah, so the so I ended up switching schools to a private school in eighth grade to be able to take Algebra One. Uh, then freshman year, I still wanted more. I was craving more. That curiosity just wasn't being uh, fostered there. Uh, so I ended up T- taking two sets of science and two math classes that that year. So that way, my sophomore year of high school, I started dual enrollment courses at the local college. And I continue kind of increasing that slowly. My junior, senior year of, coll- of uh, high school, I actually became a full-time college student as well as a full-time high school student. So by the time I graduated high school, I had uh, 72 college credits or the equivalent of an associate's degree, uh, which was wow. really great going into college because I had, you know, really rushed through a lot of things. But once I got into UW-Madison and decided I was going there and everything, it's really funny because I I could have graduated in two years. I could have had my PhD by 21 years old. I could have gotten my PhD this year, which is mind-boggling. But I had this moment where I started to really enjoy college. I started to really enjoy UW Madison and I wanted to slow down because I sat there Mm. and I said, I've got the next 40 years of my life to work. I don't need to keep rushing through school. Um, So I ended up in college really slowing it down. Uh, I took a co-op, which I'll get, I'll jump back and then go into the the engineering side of this story. Uh, But I took a co-op and now I became Miss America. So my graduation has now gone beyond four years, but I'm really Mm. okay with that. Uh, It's been something that has been financially the best decision, professionally the best decision. uh, And in terms of the friends and the memories that I've made, I wouldn't change that for the world. So that's kind of the academic side of me as to where I'm at today. So I'm in the last, year of my undergraduate degree for nuclear engineering uh i have literally 17 credits left in the degree i'm in senior design right now and an economics class i will still graduate this year while serving as miss america which is really exciting i will walk this spring simply because i want to walk with my friends but i won't graduate this spring Mm. um so yeah very excited about that but at the university
0: of wisconsin Yes, roll badge.
1: Wisconsin. <laughs> UW Wisconsin. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> UW Madison. Yes, Roll Badge. Very exciting. Uh, they have been a really, really great school, which I have truly loved. So let's dive into the. Should we do? Should we go Miss America route or the nuclear
0: route next? Where What's, do we want to well, start? Be- before we get to the nuclear, I'd love to talk about Miss America and just you know why you chose that route. You know I, I, that your story of kind of wanting to slow down is something that happened to me as well around the same time. You know, I'm, I'm we're similar in age, and and I had the same thing happen. But you decided to slow down, but you also decided to go t- for Miss America. So that's those two things seem like they could be at odds. But why why do you feel why why did you feel so uh, you know attracted to to being a part of the Miss America pageant and and really like what did you feel like your talents could do at that stage and and what do you feel like it can do going forward?
1: Yeah. So, I have been involved in Miss America for more than just the past two years. I started actually competing in the teen organization when I was 13 years old in that sixth and seventh grade time. Uh, as soon as I turned 13, I competed for Miss Wisconsin's outstanding teen. And I did that because I sucked at performing violin. Like I went up, I would shake, I would forget my music. I just couldn't perform my violin in front of an audience. So I came across the Miss America's outstanding teen organization. It has now changed to be just Miss America's teen. Uh, and I utilized that as an opportunity to continue enhancing my violin skills and my performance abilities. Now, once I competed in the first one, I realized, wait, this is going to teach me how to stand up straight. You know, I'm 5'11". I'm a, I'm a very tall woman. And typically, that means I was slouching a lot in classrooms or even just mm-hmm. talking to my friends. Uh, so that taught me how to stand up straight. It taught me interview skills, public speaking. It's at this point that right now, you know, I could be invited to go and give a 30-minute speech and I feel like. I could do it pretty comfortably without little to no more preparation. Um. So yeah, I started in Miss America because of my violin. Uh, I became Miss Wisconsin's Outstanding Teen in 2017. And you can only compete at the national level once, meaning you can only hold a state title once. You can compete for a state title multiple times uh, with different local titles, but you have to win a local to go on to compete at state and then win a state to go on to compete at the national competition. Uh, So I won my state title in 2017 as a teen. And I was 15 at the time, so I had a lot of time to kind of just go back to being myself. I was still involved in the organization, still very uh, enjoying watching it and supporting the women I met, supporting the friends I had made. And I ended up coming back as a Miss because college is expensive and we're a scholarship organization, which I am forever thankful for. Uh, It's at this point in time as Miss America, I've earned $68,900 and I had never considered going to grad school because I just didn't see the point in necessarily paying for it, uh, but now that's something where the scholarships that Miss America has provided me—it's—it's it's, it's on the table, which is exciting. And you know, right. we talked—you brought up slowing down. Uh, mm-hmm. There is no way that I planned on becoming Miss America in order to slow my graduation down. I will—I will emphasize that because I am—you can't the, plan on that one. Yeah, I'm the 95th woman to become Miss America, and this organization is over 100 years old. Like this is—this is seriously something that I don't think anyone ever plans on. Uh, It just happens. And it's something that's really exciting because I can utilize this opportunity this one year I have to go on and not necessarily change the entire world, uh, but to have the one conversation with the one person and change their world. Mm-hmm. And that's what's really important to me as Miss America is going on making these connections, talking with people, truly listening to them and and you know, maybe educating them along the way about nuclear energy and nuclear power as a whole.
0: Well, I love that. And and, and that's a great segue because I think when most people you know, have a concept of Miss America, I don't think that they would automatically assume that they would take a stance on something like nuclear energy as one of the main platform points. I mean, obviously, you've got a ton of talents and in, in public speaking and violin and, and all sorts of things and, and skiing, but nuclear, why nuclear? And And when did this become something that you realized was an important part of who you were and who you wanted to be outside of even Miss America?
1: Yeah, so to to emphasize, so the Miss America organization does not necessarily take a political stance. Right. I take a stance as Miss America because this is my belief. Um, and as Miss America, you know, I have this opportunity to promote one specific initiative. So we compete with a social impact initiative. So for me, I I said clean, clean energy, you know, clean energy for a cleaner future is what I called it. Um, so that was something that just for background information there. But what got me into nuclear? I was a 16-year-old teenage girl that had just finished touring colleges, and I was like, wow, nuclear engineering, that would be such a cool thing to go into. That sounds like such a flex, right? Because I'm 16. I don't know better. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes that
0: helps us make the best decisions when you don't know better.
1: Truly, truly. Uh, And I'll come back to that because that's very true. Uh, When I was talking with my dad, who's a civil engineer his whole life, uh, I was like, listen, so I'm thinking aerospace or nuclear? Like, what do you think? He goes, don't go into nuclear. There's no way. Mm. Like, there's no career there. They're all shutting down. Like, don't do it. Uh, So I'm a 16 year old teenage girl. What do you think I do? I I my that. head and I, watch me like <laughs> exactly. So that's actually what started me in the nuclear industry as a whole. I wish I had a cool inspirational story. What kept that's me That's pretty in
0: inspirational way- because I think there's a lot of people in this country who are high school, college uh, who who feel that way about a lot of things and when yeah. when our parents tell us to do something and we think it has it could have an impact and we decide to do it I and mean, that's a pretty cool story actually.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean it's something that I i Honestly, knowing what I know now, if I went back in time to when I was 16, four years ago, you know, a whopping four years, um, I honestly probably would agree. The nuclear industry was in a really scary situation at that point. Mm -hmm. But that blind ignorance and that blind just tenacity that got me going into the field right away uh, has kind of led me to be where I am today. And honestly, thankfully, the nuclear industry has really received a lot of positive attention in the past three years. Uh, which I'm forever thankful for. And I want to continue utilizing that positive energy surrounding the nuclear industry. I want to kind of drag the nuclear industry into the spotlight so people see how incredible this field is because that's what made me stay in the nuclear Mm. industry. As I sat there my freshman year, and I remember getting involved in a research lab, and I actually saw where nuclear science exists all around us. My dad, who said I shouldn't go into it, he's alive today. He's a two-time cancer survivor because of nuclear Mm. medicine. He is alive because of nuclear science. Mm. I went through and just learning about something as simple as bananas are radioactive. You know, it's something that the media and how education portrays the nuclear field you automatically assume everything related with nuclear is just bad or negative or scary or whatever it might be. And I was so frustrated with that and knowing that this has positively impacted so many lives in so many ways that we can't acknowledge it and we can't continue to capitalize on that potential and that ability. And that's something that I really focus on as Miss America is talking about, hey, nuclear is already a part of your life. You just don't know it Now, imagine if we do know it and capitalize on it and actually continue promoting it, imagine the good this technology can do if we acknowledge its existence. And that's something that's just really, really incredible and leads to some very insightful conversations. I love talking about you know, smoke detectors. Uh, and like I said, bananas are great topics of conversations for fourth graders uh, that I talk to because it's always something so mind-boggling to them, but it brings it to their daily life. It brings mm. them to something that they deal with every day because I think for so long, the nuclear industry has been portrayed as some high complex science when it's really not it's just mm-hmm. all around us and
0: that's just how it is so how do you i, I completely agree and and one of the things i, don't know I was, how like,
1: i got on that tangent that was that well really it's are. fascinating
0: because it, what people think about when they think of nuclear is is you know it's not it's not just about energy it's about so many things in our lives could you just quickly run through you know if people aren't aware of, you know, what nuclear engineering and what nuclear has done for our world, just name off some things. I mean, that the people might not know, nuclear has played a huge role in.
1: Yeah, so one thing for many people, I'm from a state where agriculture is a huge thing. Uh, Radiological and similar isotopes play a huge role in agriculture in terms of disinfecting or pesticides, things like that. Uh, Medicine, it's huge. Every time someone goes into a surgery, those those tools are sterilized using radiological isotopes. Uh, A magnetic resonance imaging machine, actually, when it first came out, was called a nuclear magnetic resonance imaging machine, an NMRI, but people didn't like the word nuclear. Nuclear. So they just got mm-hmm. rid of the word nuclear. And now it's a very commonly used, it's a very commonly used piece of technology in the yeah. medicine field. Uh, so that just comes back to that whole, what's the stigma behind the word nuclear uh, in the medicine field? Honestly, the, there are so many different opportunities and specific things to talk about. Obviously, when it comes to cancer treatments, radiation treatments, uh, looking outside of cancer, there's a isotope called molybdenum-99, which I, I've worked with a company in uh, Wisconsin called Shine Technologies. They're working to produce this specific isotope where one sugar packet... So imagine you're sitting at your diner, you know your local diner, you pick up the one little sugar packet. One sugar packet of molybdenum-99 has the ability to diagnose 20 million patients. Mm. And that just goes to show sort of this power density that nuclear has not only on the energy front, but on the medicine front and on so many different fronts. Uh, I mentioned smoke detectors, bananas. And I think that uh, I kind of lump in radiation into the nuclear world as well, because that's something where every time you go on an airplane, you get a lot of radiation. Like, I've, I've probably gotten more radiation from the amount of plane rides I've done as Miss America in the past two months than I have from any of the nuclear power plants I've visited. Yeah like period.
0: <laughs> yeah. I actually so. tour, I toured the one that's being built in Georgia right now. I don't know if you've been there, Plant Vogel. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. I, so, I want to make it there. Well, I can help make that happen, but the <laughs> th- they would love to have you. I'm sure they if they haven't reached out already, but the, the what I learned was that the people who work at these facilities for decades have less radiation than multiple years of just flying a plane. And yeah. And obviously the pilots are just fine, right? Like the, there's never been a problem with pilots having radioactive, uh, you know, issues. But the people who work right next to the nuclear facilities have less radiation than people who fly, people who go through uh, the metal detectors at the airport. I mean, th- these are the sorts of things that people don't don't realize, and and that's where the stigma comes from. Where I mean, we, you and I went through the same school system in Wisconsin, largely, and obviously with Common Core and everything, it's it's largely the same. Where do you feel like this stigma largely comes from and, and how are you combating that in your role right now?
1: I think that stigma primarily comes from the education system Mm -hmm. as a whole. Because I can tell you right now, I did not learn a single thing about nuclear except for World War II and learning about atom bombs. And you know what? When I Google the word nuclear, typically some of the first things that come up are Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, Fukushima, which it just cracks me up because now I've learned so much about the industry. You compare this, the nuclear industry and its highest, literally the highest standard of safety, the only energy production that has to have waste management plan in comparison to every other energy production. We are the only industry that has to have a waste management plan uh, before the plant even opens up. And that's something that just speaks to the character of the industry as a whole. Uh, so I'm really, I'm curious to see how that all works out and how that all plays out for other energy industries as a whole. Right. Uh, I, I went off on another tangent here. I got distracted. No, but you're right. I mean, on, on
0: that same point, I mean, yeah. Other energy sources have serious waste issues. I mean, creating the solar panels, creating the wind turbines, um, you know, obviously drilling for oil and gas and, and, and mining for coal, they all have serious waste issues. And nuclear is by far the one that's the most prepared for that.
1: Correct. Correct. And it's just it's so interesting because I think that, you know, going back to that original question of that stigma, you know, you wonder and this is almost like conspiracy theory land. But you wonder what is fueling mm. that education? What is fueling um, that curriculum being set up in that way? And, you know, I don't think anyone is setting it up with a malicious intent right. saying like, "Ah, we need to destroy nuclear. But who
0: with bias is is influencing it?
1: Exactly. Exactly. When I I think anyone in the nuclear industry, we all completely understand that this is the obvious path forward is, is opening up more nuclear pow- power plants, uh, whether it's fission, fusion, SMRs, whatever it might be. That's something that people are excited about. And it's just a- an incredible resource if we capitalize on it and if we allow it to be used for good. Because I think a lot of our problems right now is we assume anything nuclear related is being used for bad. When in reality, that is such a small portion, like literally two to 5% of our entire industry is weaponry, I believe, Mm -hmm. if not smaller, the rest of it is curing cancer, creating clean energy, helping feed table, like feed families. Like that's just, it's literally this huge scope of our industry.
0: So before we get into kind of the the specifics of nuclear, I mean there's a lot of people still that don't understand the the importance of nuclear in our fight against climate change and lowering emissions. Can you touch on why you know obviously you are a fan of nuclear for multiple reasons, but in terms of climate change and reducing emissions, can you speak to the power that it has and, and why that aspect is is critical in in your promotion of it?
1: So I will fully acknowledge, yes, I'm obviously very biased towards nuclear, uh, but when it comes to building a So, zero- so am I as well. <laughs> yeah.
0: but yeah, well, You can okay. be biased towards it after you realize its potential. That's okay. <laughs>
1: Exactly, exactly. So I think that the biggest thing for me is looking at a zero carbon future. There's a certain amount of baseload power that needs to be constant. It needs to be reliable. It needs to be always there, whether we need it or not, whatever it might be. And this is where I find that a lot of zero carbon energy and renewable sources fall short, actually. And as much as I would love to see a zero carbon future full of solar panels or wind energy, you know that's something that I live, I'm from Wisconsin. We don't see the sun for six months a year. Sometimes like it does not exist. Nope. <laughs> and you're except for like the
0: negative 30 degree days, sometimes it comes out.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Every once in a while, you know, it's Christmas day and you go, Oh, there it was. Did you get it? Did you see it? Uh, that's and, and that's something that I think every sort of state, every location will have A different portfolio, because right now I'm in Florida. Yeah, it would make a lot more sense to have solar panels down here. Uh, But at the same time, there needs to be a baseload source of power that's zero carbon that's reliable, that's always on. And that's something that we can count on. And that's where right now, the only reason why we need to keep fossil fuels. However, we don't need to because nuclear is very capable of doing all of those things, but also being zero carbon. Because right now, fossil fuels are still emitting carbon dioxide. I'm, I'm on the team of if we can figure out a way to capture the carbon that from fossil fuels and reuse it, reduce it, whatever it might be. Then why get rid of fossil fuels? You know, it's it's, a, it's still a great option, but it's something that we need to just explore further and make sure that we are producing zero carbon energy to help reduce you know rising health risks as things are being released in the air with with the result of climate change. Uh, and I'm I'm a person that we kind of briefly talked about global warming before that we started recording and everything. Yeah, I believe that there's a natural rate of climate change. But I believe what we're doing right now is accelerating it beyond that natural
0: rate.
1: And at a certain point, Mother Nature will win. We won't be able to keep up with that rate of acceleration of climate change. Right. So that's something where for the sake of humanity, we need to make sure that's still progressing at its natural rate so we can continue evolving as a human race to meet whatever that climate change is. Because we can't stop it. It's not going to stop ever. But we can make it happen at a rate that we can keep up with it.
0: Yeah, I mean, we just we just had a scientist on this this episode, uh, a recent episode of, of Coming Clean that talked a lot about kind of the the realities of the science, which is that a lot of this we have to adapt to a lot of it's preventable. But actually, one of the things that he's said is, is he's really been a pro nuclear advocate is that, you know, one of the most pro fossil fuel things you can do is be against nuclear. Uh, and I mean, if you're just pro renewables, if you're just pro solar and wind, you're going to have fossil fuels in an increase of fossil fuels into the future because you need that baseload power. Uh, I mean, it's pretty, I think, I think a lot of people don't even know what the word baseload means because it is kind of a wonky term, but really what it, what it means is that, you know, you need to have something that's reliable 24 seven and you can't just wait for the sun to shine and the wind to blow. Uh, because most places don't have that happening simultaneously or, you know, even throughout a majority of the day. So you can have as many solar panels or wind turbines as you want, but it won't be enough. And and nuclear helps solve that. So and in a quest for lowering emissions, obviously, it's a huge, huge part of it. Uh, so I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I think, do you feel like the education system should be really kind of honing in on nuclear as a, as an answer and have you seen any reasons as to why why they haven't been
1: I Okay, obviously, I would love to see that be the option, but I think that that would do more harm than good Mm. because I think that would do the same exact thing as how I feel about fossil fuels now, where it's like, okay, you know, it's something that we've grown up with and I know about, but I just have a negative feeling because it always is getting, you know, pushed in my face. What Mm. I think is better and what I try to do as Miss America is foster the curiosity, foster the learning, foster the desire for the individual to seek out the knowledge themselves. Now, if we can do that in our education system, which is really, really difficult because you have students from all different backgrounds, different perspectives, different views that you can't just put every single student in one box and expect them to to all come out the same way because we're all different people and that's completely okay. And this comes back to a whole different topic of conversation with the education system. But I think if we, instead of saying, okay, kids grow up and become nuclear engineers, Mm. just say, okay, kids Grow up and learn where your energy comes from, mm. Do you know, and, and it's shocking how many people that I talk to, you know, here in Florida, there is a nuclear power plant not too far right. away from where I am right now. The amount of people that don't know where their power comes from other than their utility company, they don't know if it's fossil fuels or solar or nuclear, whatever it might be. Just having that knowledge opens up a lot of doors and a lot of possibility for people to continue learning and realizing, oh, like when I leave the lights on at home or when I buy an electric vehicle and plug it into my house that's still powered by by fossil fuels, it's not reducing carbon emissions. It's just changing where the carbon emissions is happening. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's completely right. And that's also such an important point you just made about electric vehicles. I mean, the reality is that if you plug an electric vehicle into coal powered, you know, uh, energy, you're actually having a worse impact on the environment than you would otherwise, especially because the batteries take so much energy. Uh, to create uh, from the get go, you're already starting at a negative and then you're charging it with coal. And if people knew that that's where their energy was coming from, then they would know that, that that maybe isn't the best decision for right now. But nuclear provides an opportunity where you can plug your electric vehicle in and actually start to make a positive impact. But the problem is that we are closing down nuclear plants in multiple areas of the country and, and people don't realize how important it is. Could you kind of go through nuclear waste, the safety and the cost. Those are three issues that people tend to have with nuclear in terms of the stigma that they that they have been kind of taught in our education system. Could you go through the waste, the safety and the cost and and why people shouldn't be worried about those or they should be? Um, Kind of give us an overview of that.
1: So I want to start I'll start with the waste here, because that's one of the questions that I most frequently get asked. Uh, The first thing that I like to talk about is that you in your entire lifetime or me in my entire lifetime, if my entire life was powered by nuclear energy, the amount of waste I would produce is the size of a soda can. I don't have a soda can nearby. Otherwise, I would show it. But uh, that's something that- I have. a I
0: have an iced tea in right here. It's less than this. <laughs> I would guess, Right. I
1: love it. <laughs> a little bit smaller than that. Iced right. Tea. That's the, this that's- is a, this is a big one. Uh-huh. That's why I'm like, it's 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 an insane amount of energy density that the comparison between the amount of waste that you produce using nuclear power versus any sort of fossil fuels, it's just tremendous, like tons, literally tons of differences. Uh and that's something that
0: I-O-N-S, I O-N-S like- or T-O-N-N-E-S. Uh-huh.
1: Yes. <laughs> Uh, that's something I really like to talk about is I don't think people realize how powerful and how energy dense mm. uh, nuclear power is. Uh, so with that being said, you know, I like to talk about my home state of Wisconsin a lot. Uh, Wisconsin only has one nuclear power plant still running. Right. That one power plant, one singular power plant has two reactors on it. So two different um abilities, two different places to generate power, right? Two different fancy sets of fancy hot rocks. That's what I like to call uranium. It's just because that's all it is, is fancy hot rocks. Um and that's something that that one power plant powers 14% of the state, which is mm-hmm. a lot. That's a lot. And through 40 years of generating history, all of that waste fits in the size of into the size of an Olympic swimming pool. Mm-hmm. All of it in 40 years. Now that's an insane amount. So that's something that I think lets people um rationalize how much waste is actually produced by nuclear power. Now, I will acknowledge, yes, it's still radioactive and everything after it's been taken out of the plant. Now, here's where it's a policy thing, because we have a lot of really incredible, intelligent and brilliant people in the nuclear field. We have plenty of options to re- to recycle that nuclear waste, to pull it apart, use it in the medical field for certain things. Uh, but because of how policy is set up, once it's taken out of a power plant, that's it. It's done. Mm-hmm. When nuclear waste is removed from that power plant, it's still got about 90 to 95 percent of its usability left in it. Uh, and that's something that we can capitalize on if we actually allow it to be used for good. Uh, So that's something that's really interesting on the waste side in terms of there is plenty of scientific and technological solutions. We just have to allow it to happen as a general public, as a populace, because who we vote into office controls those policy decisions and controls those issues. So keep that in mind next time you go to the voting booth, right? (laughs) But um, so that's, that's the waste. I like to talk a lot here. Sorry. No, so that's, that's, uh, what was the next great. one? We were going to talk about the, cost. the safety, safety. OK, we'll go into safety then. Uh, so safety, nuclear, the nuclear industry is one of the safest forms of energy production, especially for employees to work in. I believe the only one it even comes close to is, is hydroelectric. Yep. Everything else is significantly more dangerous. And I like to talk about how in 50 to 60 years of global generating history across the entire globe, We've only had those three major disasters that I listed off earlier. Let's talk about just the past 15 years in America alone. Let's talk about just the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, right? right? Like growing up with that, that's an insane thing that I would say is significantly worse than Chernobyl, yet we're not shutting down fossil fuel plants because of that. So it's it's interesting how there's kind of that double standard there uh, that's that's
0: not happening. The least amount of deaths for en- any energy source. And that's, you know, including solar and wind. I mean, people die in the mining process. You know, there's so many uh, same with the oil and gas, obviously, with the oil spills. And and obviously, it's a dangerous process. Getting that in coal is, you know, probably arguably the most dangerous. Um, and nuclear is, is kind of has these three major events that people think about. But A, all of them are preventable. And, and B, that was with really old technology and, you know, Chernobyl with a pretty tyrannical uh, government that allowed that to happen. So I I, I mean, it's, it's so true that it's, it's safe. I mean, you and I both stood near radioactive material. We both stood near nuclear facilities (laughs) and we're doing just fine.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And I love to talk about how as well with specifically Fukushima Daiichi and with Three Mile Island, Chernobyl is kind of in a league of its own yeah. in terms of natural disaster, just because of the circumstances it was in and everything. I, the government played a huge role into the, why that accident happened. Um, but Fukushima Daiichi and Three Mile Island were two incidents that I would say happened under normal circumstances. Sure. Um and the thing is, is how much we learned from each of those, how much those two disasters changed the entire nuclear industry for the better. I'm at the point where I worked with America's largest nuclear fleet at the corporate level as a co-op. So I was bottom of the barrel, right? The very, very bottom. Uh, but I would go through submit work that would go to 12 different nuclear power plants. So I would submit it to first I'd peer review it. I'd check it myself, do a self-check. Then I'd send it to my mentor who would check it. Then my boss would check it. And then we'd have someone from outside the group check it. And then we all sat down when we said, yes, this we can't find any errors. It looks correct. And then we would all sit down and say, hey, are we ready for worst case scenario if something goes wrong with this this specific tool that was being implemented? And we didn't implement it until the answer to that question was, yes, we're ready for worst case scenario. And that's just how much has changed. And that is specifically a result from Three Mile Island, I think, because Three Mile Island was something that did play a major role in how our culture as nuclear workers behaved.
0: Right. And it was also featured in so many pop culture things that were instilled into our parents' generation. I think back to you know conversations that i had with my parents and grandparents and family about nuclear and and just the stereotypes from that one event uh were so damaging but while the stereotypes were being super damaging to the pop culture side of of uh of nuclear uh the nuclear industry was making sure that that would never happen again and that is you know not Likely to ever happen ever again, and and it's the safest industry because of that. Okay, so so we've got safety and and waste covered. So we we really now are just on the cost side of things. Where where do you go when people talk about the cost of nuclear and say, okay, I get it. It's safer than than we've heard about. The waste is is not so bad, but compared to other energy sources, it's expensive. What say you?
1: So the initial the initial capital investment in a nuclear power plant is massive, and I will fully acknowledge that. I think that is one of the weaknesses of the industry and of what we have to offer. Uh, but. At the same time, looking at the power plants that were built, you know, 40 years ago, first of all, I kind of chuckled walking through the Wisconsin power plant last week because it was like 60 million to build the entire plant. And I'm like, gosh, that's a dream. Like that is yes. a dream right there, uh, back when it was first built. Um, uh, but the thing is, is that they last forever. I look at a lot of these fossil fuel plants and the amount of, of shutdowns and the amount of, uh, interchanging that happens between fossil fuel plants. And just once they're shut down. They're just left there. Uh, There's no cleanup process. There's no additional planning uh, through that shutdown process. Once a nuclear power plant opens because of that capital investment, it's going to stay open for a while and they're going to know what to do with it. It's providing good jobs to communities. It's providing hundreds of good paying jobs to the communities they're built in, in addition to clean, reliable energy. Uh, but beyond that when it comes to the actual utility cost um you know we just went through this in in one of the classes i'm in which is just really fascinating but the nuclear industry doesn't really have the freedom to say okay we're going to charge this amount you know mm-hmm. they're really stuck with Having that average cost just because of how nuclear power operates, because it's on 24 seven. They have to charge the average cost. So sometimes it is more expensive. Sometimes it is cheaper, depending on what the cost and demand is, uh, or supply and demand of power is at the time. So that's a really fascinating thing. I do find that generally nuclear is a more inexpensive source of power to power your home. Uh, and in the long run and in the, the big picture of it all. So if I were building yeah. my own home, and I'm, I'm not an economics pro. I'm not a finance pro. Uh, but that's something that I would definitely go with a nuclear power plant hands down if I had the choice of nuclear or fossil fuels. Because you know what? I know the nuclear power plant has high standards. It's never going to shut off. It's never going to be unreliable. I will always have power. You know, I like to talk about Texas a couple years ago with the, the deep freeze that they had. And they had so many power plants shut down for weeks at a time. The right. ones that stayed running were nuclear power. And that's something to speak for our our safety and our standards that we have in the energy production system.
0: Well, and I and I just double checked the statistic, looking it up. But you need more than three million solar panels c- to produce the same amount of power as a typical commercial nuclear reactor, and yeah. uh, and or more than four hundred thirty wind turbines. Now that doesn't even c- include the fact that it's not. And that's assuming that it's tw- that those sources are twenty four seven. So if if solar and wind were 24-7, if it was sunny and windy all day, every day, you would need more than 3 million solar panels or 430 wind turbines to equal one commercial nuclear plant. And so, yes, the initial cost of the nuclear plant is expensive because it's powering. I mean, the ones in in, in Georgia that I just toured, each reactor is powering uh, over 250,000 homes 24-7. So, of course, that's going to be an expensive upfront cost, but the long-term uh, effectiveness of that energy and, and the impact that it has economically is actually a very positive thing. It's just that scary, big, audacious number at the beginning. And not only is that you know important to understand, but also the technology is getting a lot better to reduce those costs. And one of the biggest reasons that the costs are so so much of a barrier right now is because of the government regulations and the hoops that you know these companies have to jump through, where it takes decades to just get through some of these uh, approval processes that other countries don't make their you know nuclear energy uh, reactors go through. Even you know first world countries that have safety standards, like not going through, not not bypassing safety, but just you know unnecessary government barriers. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about you know the difference between the new technology that's coming online and has had some breakthroughs over the last couple of months uh, and years. And the traditional reactors that as we're talking about are still very effective and cost you know cost effective but actually are being one- upped by some of this new stuff.
1: Yeah. So I just want to revisit the solar panel comparison with the three million versus uh, one nuclear power plant. The one thing being from an agriculture state, think about how much farmland is going to waste, mm. to create a solar field that big. Right. Um, so there's a serious economic trade off there in terms of power production versus agriculture and getting food on the table because our population is going to continue to grow. We're going to need more places to put people with homes and we're going to need more farmland to continue to feed them. Uh, so that's one thing to keep in mind when talking about, you know, reserving giant plots of land for potential energy sources that couldn't that aren't as good as nuclear when you have a right. small land usage, effective, reliable and safe form of production, producing power. Uh, so that leads into the next topic here. So right now in the nuclear industry, what's kind of all the rage, uh, the really new exciting thing is something called small modular reactors. And I will completely acknowledge I'm I'm in part of the excitement. My senior design project is designing a small modular reactor using LEU plus fuel, which I'll dive into that in a second here. Um, so so small modular reactors are kind of miniaturized nuclear power plants of what we have today. Uh, not in the sense that the core is actually kind of a similar size, but everything else is able to be uh, processed and, and brought down to a smaller size. But the biggest thing is it reduces the initial capital cost. Mm. Um, these small modular reactors, a lot of the companies that I've seen that are working on it, there's so many different companies that are doing it. Everyone's got their own process. But one of the big draws to this is that these small modular reactors are built in a factory and then shipped out to where the power plant will be placed. So the difference between current power plants that are being built, like the one in Georgia that was just built, is everything is built on site. You know, the concrete's poured there. Everything is done on site uh, and built from the reactor around it. Like it starts with the reactor core and then everything is built around it. And that's part of the reason why building a nuclear reactor is so expensive. Now, if we can change that that construction process through things like this small modular reactor, generate everything within a factory, and then ship it out and assemble it on site, if it's just assembly, that reduces a lot of that capital cost, which is very, very exciting on that front. Uh, but then the other thing with small modular reactors, is was I going with this? So the, they've got the possibility of of really just having the ability to be used in anywhere. Uh, One of the big selling points with a company specifically called New Scale, I'll give them a little shout out. They're my partner for senior design. (laughs) They're awesome. They're my partner. So um, they they are able to fit in their small modular reactors into old retired coal plants. So -hmm. that changes what coal plants that have been shut down can be used for and helps clean up those sites in order to come back to producing power and generating more clean energy uh, for wherever that that SMR is located,
0: yeah, and you're boosting those communities. I mean, I've, as you've done as well, touring kind of these these places around the country. These are struggling communities. I mean, I, I've toured West Virginia, Utah, different places where there's coal, Pennsylvania, and. You know, or there was coal, and now there's nothing there. and those those communities have basically went from an energy boom with a lot of economic resources to a place where they don't know what to do. They don't have money for education. They don't have money for jo- they don't have any jobs. They don't have any like anything in their communities that are so dependent on the energy production. Just like if you're living close to a huge solar company, there's a lot of jobs for that solar company. If it all went away overnight, you would be straight out of luck. All those people would be straight out of luck. So, you know, this is an opportunity to boost those communities and bring them back to life in a way that they also know, right? It's it's at a site, it's at a place where they've potentially worked before, where their family potentially has worked before, but it's also doing it, you know, producing energy in a way that's clean and affordable for for all Americans. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of America, we are not doing that great of a job on this, and China is building dozens of new nuclear plants. Well, we're closing some. What do you think America needs to do to embrace this kind of pro-nuclear future? And and are there other countries that are doing things right?
1: Yeah, so I think right now, you know, China is constructing new power plants. I think France has a great model of what they went through to now be powered almost entirely by nuclear energy. Uh, that's something that we can learn from. You know yes. Why can't we do that? Why can't we start making these things possible? I was on Twitter the other day and it was really interesting because there was another nuclear advocate that was speaking with another scientist who didn't who was anti nuclear. And they said, oh, well, there's no way to possibly build enough nuclear power plants in the next 20 years. France is a perfect example of making that happen, of building plenty of nuclear power plants within 20 years, getting them on the grid and getting them supplying clean energy to homes. Uh, and that's something that's really important to look at on, on our end as Americans. But in terms of what like I can do or what you can do or what the listener here can do, I love to I the best thing I have is be annoying call your senators, call your people. Uh, I like to start the family Thanksgiving fight, right? You know, sit down for Thanksgiving dinner and say, all right, you know, mom, dad, where does your energy come from? You know, it's a, it's a really great topic of conversation because all of a sudden everyone's Googling it on their phone and, you know, you're trying to figure out how does energy actually impact your life? What does your energy coming from do to change your life? And how can you be a part of that? Uh, And that's something that's really important to have is just start that conversation, start that awareness, uh, because once you yourself have learned about where your energy comes from or what we can be doing better, then we can go through and start electing officials into office that are promoting this and being a part of it.
0: Well, and I would love to work with you on the connection to elected officials, because I think your voice on this is super critical. I mean, you're not an elected you know, position, but you, you have this platform that people listen to and pay attention to like an elected official at a really large scale. But if you were an elected official for a day, a week, a month, a year, you know, not to get into like specific policies, but what would you want to do in the United States to, to help scale nuclear in a way that maybe like where where would you want to put some of those resources and push um, in a way that would help kind of move us closer to a France closer to you know where we want to be in terms of nuclear
1: I think first and foremost and I think this goes for everything government wise not just energy is I would shut up and listen
0: for mm. once <laughs> that's so- really hard for a lot of these guys <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of politicians, and one of my biggest frustrations, and I I hope to continue this advocacy all throughout my career, but my biggest pet peeves is when I see politicians, when I see legislators go into a room and have zero experience specifically with nuclear or zero Mm -hmm. knowledge overall, yet they're the ones making the decision. Uh, So for me personally, throughout my life, I hope to stay involved with the nuclear industry, and I always want to be doing some engineering work, some boots on the ground things, in addition to having conversations like this. Uh, but I think if I were in in an office for a day. You know, sit down, listen to the to the people that are generating power, listen to the consumers, listen to people that are having problems because we're getting to a point where power bills are continuing to go up. That's hurting American citizens at their home level, yeah. and we need to start talking about how we can actually continue allowing power to be an affordable option for everyone to access. Mm-hmm. Our phones, our laptops, our podcasts, everything comes from energy, mm-hmm. and we need to make sure that that is an accessible source. Uh, So that's something that I would probably start with. Specifically, I would look at keeping our current plants open. Yes, They have been good. They have proved they're good. They've been operating for anywhere from 20 to 40 years. Why shut them down? Mm -hmm. why stop them? Uh, And that's something that if, if they believe that they can continue operating at that same pace, at that same ability, providing good paying jobs, providing highly educated jobs and continuing to just create clean energy for these communities, why shut them down? You know, that's one of the most frustrating things to me. I think um, Diablo Canyon is, is a perfect example of, I just could not understand the logic of shutting it down because that is a state that I've got friends out in California. They constantly have rolling brownouts. How could Mm -hmm. they use their biggest generator of energy and still be a stable state when it comes down to it uh, and when it comes to the energy portfolio. So that would be probably my number one priority is keeping power plants open. But then from there, it's changing that public perception, because if we can change public perception surrounding Mm -hmm. nuclear, then we have communities saying, bring your nuclear power plant here. We want it in our backyards. We want it here because it's bringing in those high paying jobs. It's safe. It's effective. It's reliable. And we will never question if we're getting energy that day, getting electricity or not, which is very, very powerful. And I think something that needs to be remembered uh, moving forward within the nuclear industry.
0: Well, and that narrative does need to change. And and I think it is changing. And, and it's it's thanks to, you know, groups like ours, people like you. There's so many people now in in the mainstream who are starting to popularize this. But your voice in this as someone who people are going to be looking to eat more and more over the next year is just absolutely incredible. And and beyond, I mean, I think that there's just endless opportunity. But I mean what you said is correct. I mean it's scary how few people know about where their energy comes from because it does matter. It does it does matter where your energy comes from. But what's even more scary than that is how little elected officials know where their energy comes from and they're the ones making these decisions. And I think your point is right. We need to be annoying. We need to be in their face but in a in a positive way and pushing them yeah. to do the right thing, right? To to be yeah. to be annoying and in a pestering like hey, circling back, you know, following up, you know, like we do on yeah. emails in a in a respectful way, but in a way that they understand that this, this this energy conversation is critical. And if they don't understand it, then they shouldn't be making decisions for us. If they don't understand where their power comes from, if they don't understand how nuclear works, if they are blind to all of that and they just understand the stereotypes, then making policies and laws is the worst possible thing that uh, someone could do. And I think the governor of California is a perfect example of this, where you know now because they're closing down nuclear and natural gas and other things, they're importing coal from other countries and states nearby because they don't have the power reliable uh, reliable power that they need to to meet their energy demands which are massive. California has massive energy demands and now they're using outside the states uh you know worse energy sources than nuclear which they shut down for really no reason and mostly because of the uh, the stigmatization that there is. So I completely agree and we only have a few more minutes left and I could talk to you about this for hours and I hope that we can work together on the elected official front. But moving gears just for a second, you have been an incredible inspiration for women across the country. Uh, I have two sisters and and a mother who have been inspired by you. Uh, you have applied something that traditionally, you know, Miss America is seen as kind of this, you have to be beautiful and you just have to be looking fit and this all that stuff. And you obviously have uh, an important role outside of that, that you have really embraced in, in terms of inspiring young women to not just be beautiful on the outside, but also be, you know, believe that they can do anything they want to do in this world. And whether that's your talent with violin through nuclear engineering, through your, you know, sports, what advice would you give, young women in this country, and I'm sure you've been asked this a lot, but what advice would you give young women in this country specifically around nuclear and engineering and and why getting involved in these sorts of things is so impactful and why they can do it?
1: My biggest thing is stay true to you. Like that really, and I feel like that's a cliche piece of advice that people hear all the time. Um, but truly, I went into Miss America this year, the competition with the idea of I'm going to go in there 100% me. I wanted Mm. to have zero regrets about what I presented on stage, what I said, because I know if they choose me to be Miss America, I don't want them thinking I'm somebody else. I want them to choose me for me. Mm. And that is the most important thing to me, at least in my career and what I'm doing, uh, that I'm here for myself and I'm here representing what I believe in, not what somebody else is paying me to say or believe in or what it might be. Uh, but I think the biggest thing is, is when it comes to to people growing up and being in the STEM field and engineering and nuclear, whatever it might be, and specifically women, you know, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be something that people will definitely, you know, fight, ignore, whatever it might be. And I think that goes for anyone, not just women. Uh, But the biggest thing is staying true to who you are, standing up for what you believe in, being confident in yourself. Uh, And that's something that I'm very thankful for the Miss America organization that taught me how to do all of those things. Uh, But it's something that has played a huge role in my life moving forward. Uh, And this comes back to, to wanting, a desire for the challenge. And I think that's part of the reason why I got into the Miss America organization is I desired that challenge of changing this misconception because this organization is full of incredible, inspirational women, not just me, but every single one of the state title holders. And I'd put money on every single one of the local title holders too, has done something truly incredible. And they're women that are uplifting other women. So finding your group of people, your community that supports you and staying true to who you are is one of the most important things to me.
0: Well, and, and that's really powerful because I feel like authentic, it's the authenticity that really, sh- you know, shined through for you and people appreciate that. And, you know, small town, uh, you know, Wisconsin girl who's got a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of talents is the one that's 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 winning these things because it's the authenticity that you brought to that stage. You're just like everyone else in, in the fact that you have the same, you know, you have to wake up and do the same things each day as everyone else. And I think that that disconnect between this kind of, reality that people have painted of, of kind of of people in pop culture or miss America all those sorts of things you're bringing it back down to earth and that you're just like everyone else and and you're doing things that anyone else can do as well and I think that that's really inspirational and, and shine through a lot so I, I I appreciate that uh a ton and and I think it speaks a lot to who you are so before we end uh, I've got a couple rapid fire questions for you yes and I <laughs> and I and I think some of them will be really really fun so the first one is kind of related to the nuclear conversation, but what is your favorite non-nuclear climate environmental solution right now?
1: Oh, geothermal. I think it's super cool, and I love learning about it. That's something that I guess I'm still in the learning phase, but geothermal has a lot of really neat applications.
0: Love that. Okay, favorite nuclear-related facility you've ever toured?
1: Oh, that's an intense subject. I've been to three different nuclear power plants. I've been to a couple of medicine facilities. However, I this is a really broad statement, but I do really love going to research environments mm. um, and research labs because one, talking to the people there, they will talk about that like one bolt on the one machine like for hours. <laughs> and I love it. I love it. I love the enthusiasm, the passion, the energy that goes into those facilities. Uh, and that's something that I really, really love to see.
0: Love that. Okay. So favorite place to water ski and winter ski.
1: Ooh. Okay. Winter ski. I've actually only winter skied a downhill in Wisconsin. I grew up in Wausau at Granite Granite Peak. Peak. Yeah. A couple minutes away from Granite Peak. So I spent a lot of time at Granite Peak. So probably there for downhill skiing. Uh, A lot of fun memories there
0: as well. I would say it's, it's, there's something special about that place.
1: Oh yeah. It's totally different. I mean, it doesn't, it's not Colorado, but it's Wisconsin skiing. So
0: it's the best Wisconsin's got.
1: (laughs) Yep. Literally, literally. Um, but for water skiing, you know, I've skied in a lot of really awesome places. Uh, one place that I think would take the list is take the top of the list is Lake Powell. That is on my bucket Mm. list. I really want to water ski through Lake Powell. Uh, however, I've got some family property in northern Wisconsin that it's really remote. There's no Wi-Fi, no cell service. You go up there and you truly kind of disconnect. we will bring the boat up there and water ski up there. And that's always just some really great times because it's family and friends and people just... Being people, which is so special, you know, we sit there throughout the day and say, oh, all right, well, how high of a pyramid can we make with the equipment that is definitely not rated for pyramids, you know, Um, and then going through and at night, you know, sitting by the campfire and telling stories and making pudgy pies and all the good things.
0: Well, that's 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 my happy place too. Monaco, Wisconsin, is where my family has a, a a cabin. And it's literally exactly that. I mean, you, you really We're- disconnect.
1: Yeah, which which lake are you on? In lake Minocqua. Okay, you're on Lake Minocqua. I worked at BJ Sports Shop. No uh, way. Summer after I graduated high school, so oh my I was gosh. there for a summer. Yeah, I. Know, we probably like Managua. passed
0: each other in multiple totally. instances. Whether that's on Granite yeah. Peak at BJ Sports Shop, we we have a lot of overlap here. <laughs> probably,
1: probably. I mean, I worked the gas dock and everything. I did the boat rentals at BJ's, and it was great. I oh loved it. Oh my goodness!
0: It was, that a, is it was a really great summer job. <laughs> crazy small world. That is a beautiful yeah. part of this this country that people don't realize is so beautiful. But it's hard to yeah. get to, which is good, so people don't go there too much. Um, we
1: have enough right. Chicago people.
0: It's okay. <laughs> That's true, but we'll we'll let we'll let the Chicagoans have it. Um, yeah. Favorite self care practice. I know it's important. Oh
1: my gosh. I love sweets. So I'm a really, I'm a very, I would say largely unhealthy person, I guess in terms of my like, Eating habits, uh, but I really make up for it in my lifestyle. I'm not the type of person that goes to the gym, but I stay active in a lot of other ways. I love water skiing. You know, yesterday I went kayaking in the national park near here.
0: Incredible. Um,
1: and just going through and making sure I'm still active in my everyday. But uh, my favorite thing is, you know, definitely raw cookie dough and eating, you know, ho ho cupcakes. I definitely had one before this podcast. Uh, it's just one of those little things that that brings joy to the day. And that's
0: what you, that that's what brought you the energy to uh, to get through this was that. That was that cupcake some so good sugar nice. some good sugar <laughs> well now that you're you know spending time around the country you're you're probably get going to a lot of places that uh aren't just in Wisconsin that have culvers and my last question is what is your go-to culvers order
1: oh okay i i'm a chicken tenders kind of girl so i definitely get the chicken tenders but the custard spicy or regular regular okay. I really, i'm a spicy really tender basic guy. <laughs> Because typically, okay, but to defend myself here, typically when I go to Culver's, it's because I'm kind of seeking a little bit of comfort food and like a taste of home. Uh, So I want like a super basic home meal. Uh, I I do a lot of the adventure food when I'm at other places. I try and every time I'm at a new place, since I eat out all the time with Miss America, um, I usually try to find like local places to grab a snack at or to grab dinner at. And that leads to some really awesome food there. But Culver's chicken tenders for the custard, though, um, if I'm feeling basic, then it'll be just vanilla with cookie dough. Uh, However, if I'm going for like an exciting thing, I love to have mint uh, with the Oreo crumbles on top of it too. Uh, and I'll sometimes do chocolate custard. I change it. Up. I actually change it up a lot with my custard. I don't have a, con- a super consistent order.
0: You need to be like the the face of, of Culver's uh, because that's just be another way for you to to, to really own the Wisconsin uh, background, but also, you know, bring Culver's in on the nuclear side of things. You know, I don't know why they wouldn't want to take a stance on it, but they could. They could. Heck well, yeah, I love it. <laughs> Grace, I mean, we're, we're out of time, but I, I really appreciate you coming on here. This is such a fun conversation. And I really hope we can work together more truly because you have such such an incredible platform here. I mean Miss America, you're turning you know your Miss America title into something that's not just about you know serving this country with with your talents, but you're also fighting for a better, cleaner future. And that's something that I think makes your Um, you know, your platform here, probably the most unique I've ever seen uh, for someone in your type of position. So I really value your voice in this. I think you've got an incredible opportunity to keep changing this narrative. And thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it, Benji. Thank you so much.
0: And before we jump, the Coming Clean Podcast is grateful to be powered by Orsted, a wonderful company strengthening America's energy security with reliable and domestic clean energy. Through its integrated renewable energy solutions, Orsted is creating American jobs, investing in American communities, and driving American innovation, all while preserving our country's natural habitats. A clean energy future truly connects us all, and Orsted is helping lead the charge. To learn more, visit us.orsted.com.